Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, buddy. Got any room on that bench? Yeah? Aw, oh, thanks, man. So, what brings you to the courthouse today? Oh, no, no, man. None of my business. Keep it to yourself if you want. I just got nothing better to do than to listen to your tale of woe if you want to tell it. No big deal. Yeah, yeah, I'm listening. Lost your job. Jesus, that sucks. So you got behind on your payments and now those bastards are coming to foreclose. I know how that feels. Damn. Back taxes, too? Those IRS dudes are nothing to mess with. They took down Capone, you know. Man. Sorry to hear it. You know what? I'm sure you're not in the mood to hear this, but I was just where you are now once. And it can get better. Don't let nobody tell you different. You just gotta learn what they already know. What do I mean? Well, let me show you. Can you pull out those mortgage forms? Yeah, see there? See how they got your name, but it's all in capital letters? That's the same thing you see on all those official documents. Birth certificate, social security card, all of it. Buddy, I don't want to blow your mind or anything, but, uh... That's not your name. I know, it looks like your name, but do you ever write your name out in all caps like that? No. No, you don't. So why do they do it? Because they're not talking about you. They're talking about your straw man. What's my straw man? Yeah, that's a great question. Basically, your straw man is the fake legal person that the government created on the day you were born. They sold that baby straw man off to foreign bankers to prop up the worthless paper that passes for money in the U.S. today. All the taxes and fees you pay them, you don't even know it. Your straw man does. So imagine, what happens when you file the right papers? You stop acknowledging the debts your straw man owes? Why? You can not only stop paying your mortgage, but you can stop paying all your bills. You can stop paying taxes. And you can draw checks on the millions they've got socked away in your straw man's account. And no more driver's license or registration fees either. Hell, once you're totally free, you don't even have to obey their stupid speed limits or zoning laws or any of that mess. You can become a sovereign citizen, answering only to the Lord above and the dictates of your conscience. And all those judges and lawyers, those feds and IRS agents, they know all this stuff. And they do what they can to keep it secret. But if you're interested... There's a seminar this weekend that'll teach you everything you want to know for a couple hundred bucks. They'll give you the forms and the words you need. (laughs) Ha! Bet they never taught you that in school. So, buddy, you in? Ready to learn the truth? You ready to be truly, totally, free? Good. 
you can start by freeing your mind from all of that horse shit. Acting on beliefs like these costs a lot more than the price of a seminar. Ask Wesley Snipes, now that he's out of jail. Did you miss us? It's the Paranoid Strain. consolation of your milky bosom. <coughs> Sorry, I'm your apparently overstimulated host, Fearful Jesuit, and we're here to explain every goddamned conspiracy theory that you, your racist uncle, and that crazy dude who accosted you for the Illuminati's pager number on the bus last Tuesday ever heard of. There are a lot of them out there, though, so it's going to take us a while. Relax. This is both our fifth episode overall and the third and final of our series on the right-wing violent extremist movement that's gone by a number of names over its history, but is currently known as the Sovereign Citizens. Over the past two episodes, we've explained the turgid history of these groups and investigated the funny and horribly tragic effects they've had on society as a whole. If you haven't listened to those yet, please do so, because they'll be a great help in understanding what we're covering in this episode. While you're at it, feel free to go back to the beginning of the series, where you'll learn more about conspiracies in general, and about the notorious anti-Semitic forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, in particular. I promise we'll still be waiting here for you when you get back. Now, assuming we're all caught up, please allow a personal note. This episode is the whole reason I started working on this series, nearly two years ago by the time this airs. In fact, this episode marks the end point of a long journey to definitively answer one question, a query that has vexed philosophers and kings, an idea that has puzzled human beings since we first began to contemplate what it is to be a thinking agent, simultaneously blessed and cursed with conscience, the appearance of free will, and the sure knowledge of our inevitable mortality. That question of course, is. Hey, remember Wesley Snipes? I like that guy. The government locked him up for some reason. Why did he go to jail again? Not what you were expecting? Let me explain. You may recall that, a few years ago, Mr. Snipes entered the third act of his career, from arresting roles in urban dramas like New Jack City and Jungle Fever, to a star turn as the surly, half-vampire, vampire hunter Blade. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. To his stunning, naturalistic, totally convincing portrayal of federal inmate 43355-018. Okay, if you remember that, ask yourself this. Do you remember why it happened? A lot of people seem to know it had something to do with taxes. And sure, the IRS does tend to take a pound of flesh when it finds a citizen hasn't been forking over the required percentage. Just ask Willie Nelson, whose struggles to pay back the IRS in the 90s led to a series of truly unfortunate events. But there was a lot more to the snipe story than just tax dodging. 
Snipes had actually challenged the government on the whole idea of who has to pay income taxes. Hint, not him. And not only declined to pay his then-current debt, but demanded reimbursement for the preceding several years he had paid. Yes, everyone hates paying taxes, and all of us try to keep everything we can, legally. Okay, kind of legally. But we all understand that there's something that has to be paid, right? Well, as it turns out, no. There's a growing group of Americans who deny the legitimacy of the IRS, law enforcement, even the federal government itself. Snipes fell in with these guys and got some unbelievably awful tax advice. But he's hardly the only one. So today, we're going to tell you exactly what happened to Wesley Snipes. But on the way there, we're going to explore some truly fascinating and utterly incorrect ideas about how the courts, taxes, and every other aspect of the law works. We're going to see what happens when the fever dreams that every anti-government extremist from the posse comitatus to tax protesters to sovereign citizens has about these systems smash headlong into reality. So let's start with the fundamental question we brought up in our introduction. What exactly is your straw man? In this, our wondrous modern age, Amazon.com will let pretty much anybody type up a crazy set of nonsensical observations and turn it into a self-published book. Even better, any self-appointed chronicler of conspiracy twaddle can then purchase said masterpiece, setting in motion modern supply chain miracles that will cause it to appear at this ne'er-do-well's house within two days. Knowing this, we can be nearly certain of two things. One, there are a lot of people out there crafting books out of poorly thought out and sketchily researched ideas on a wide variety of spurious topics. And two, based on his Kindle purchases, Fearful Jesuit is undoubtedly on a large number of government watch lists. Regardless, the self-publishing Amazon phenomenon is the blessed reason that I, and by extension, all of you, get to learn the wisdom of David Robinson the self-described Administrator of the Unified Maine Common Law Grand Jury for the Maine Republic Free State. Ooh, official. And the author of the deeply silly 80-page tome, Meet Your Straw Man. There are, surely, hundreds of competing, mutually contradictory, but very similar books available for a snarky podcaster seeking to make fun of the deeply felt, completely silly ideas of sovereign citizens. But Mr. Robinson's pamphlet is brief, to the spurious point, and fairly lively for its type, so we're going to use it and a few other standouts as our guides through the twisting river of Fufarah that is sovereign legal theory. Okay, enough preamble. What the fuck is a straw man? Fair enough. Sovereign citizens, like many in the militias, the posse comitatus, and others who came before them, believe that the federal government as the founders envisioned it ceased to exist sometime in the past. What instead now exists is a rapacious corporation intent on enslaving you and stealing your money without your knowledge. The key dates for this tornado of misapprehension include the passage of the 14th Amendment in 1868, the District of Columbia Organic Act of 1871, the inception of the income tax and the Federal Reserve in 1913, and the cumulative decisions of Roosevelt in 1933 and Nixon in 1973 to take the United States off of the gold standard. Let's take these individually. The 14th Amendment was, most obviously, the amendment that declared all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. 
to be U.S. citizens, and is essentially the law that was supposed to bring the slaves freed by the 13th Amendment into full legal equality with other Americans, though of course Jim Crow laws ensured its effect was negligible for the next hundred years or so. But, like, check it, dog, that's just what they want you to believe. Many sovereign citizens are of the opinion that this amendment also set up two different classes of citizenship, the freed slaves, along with the natives of Washington, D.C. and some other American territories, are 14th Amendment citizens, while all the other read white folks, as state sovereign citizens, remained unaffected. They are not subject to all of the laws passed by state and federal governments, which they refer to dismissively as statutes. They are subject only to natural laws, don't murder, steal, etc. Statutes, which make up the vast majority of the things we regard as laws, only apply to 14th Amendment citizens. However, the powers that be are desperate to convince all of the free, sovereign citizens that they are no better than the 14th Amendment citizens as part of an even more complicated, nefarious plan by which the United States government ceased to be an actual government and converted itself into a corporation. No, we don't know exactly how this is supposed to have worked either, and we've read way, way, way too much of this bullshit. While the details remain sketchy, since this is all a bunch of completely fabricated nonsense culled from disparate, inconsistent, absolutely groundless sources, the sovereigns have taken an 1871 act that clarified aspects of the government and boundaries of the already existing District of Columbia and use it to argue that the entire U.S. government functions as a company that is owned lock, stock, and barrel by those nefarious foreign bankers. A corporate entity. After the Civil War, the United States defaulted on its war debt. During the bankruptcy proceedings, cunning lawyers in league with international bankers found a loophole within Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the United States Constitution, which allowed the creation of a duplicate entity known as the Corporation of the United States of America to replace the now bankrupt and defunct Republic of the United States of America. This occurred with the passage of the District of Columbia Organic Act of 1871, which incorporated the area of the District of Columbia into a private foreign corporation chartered in the City of London known as the United States Incorporated. This corporation designated Congress as the Board of Directors to continue the business needs of the government under martial law. Thanks to the Lieber Code. Just why this innocuous law drew their ire is unclear, but sovereign theorists insist that the act pulled a sleight of hand, substituting the Constitution for the United States of America with the Constitution of the United States of America. Yes, you heard right. The only difference there was substituting for with of, but apparently that's full-on prepositional treason. See, the for version referred to the U.S. as a nation, whose name is properly written out in a combination of upper and lowercase letters, while the of version refers to a corporation whose name is properly written out in all capital letters. This blather about distinguishing things written in all capital letters from those written in sentence case will remain vital to these chuckleheads. So, you know, keep it in mind. So, according to this theory, the Congress threw the old Constitution in the trash and replaced it with a new one, identical except for one preposition, which in turn meant that this new corporation could rule the country from the District of Columbia and begin the process of selling out our national blood and treasure to the foreign bankers who are definitely not supposed to be a code word for international Jewry. Got it? No? Well, tough. It gets weirder from here. Then, of course, we come to the income tax. Now, 
There are plenty of sane folks who aren't big fans of these taxes, or of the IRS, but what we're going to focus on here is the fact that the more wackadoo members of the tax protest movement created a body of legal-sounding but totally specious material that sovereigns would eventually incorporate seamlessly into their spittle-flecked worldview. As to the Federal Reserve and the gradual abandonment of the gold standard for U.S. currency, these are the most frequently cited trigger points for the implementation of the full strawman system that secretly keeps U.S. citizens under its thumb even today. See, the way it supposedly works is this. When a brand new baby American is born, he or she is issued a birth certificate and soon thereafter a social security card and other documents. Most of us understand that these are simply the records that are kept by any modern bureaucratic system to ensure that information remains up to date, important services can be apportioned correctly, and eventually benefits can be distributed according to the law. But sovereigns know better. How? Well, you'll need to meet your straw man. He was born the same day you were. He looks like you, has the same name, and lives in your house, but you never knew he existed. You will have even paid his parking tickets or taxes. The worst part? He's been dead from day one. From every birth certificate, a legal personality, or legal fiction, is created with the same name to confuse little old you into thinking it's you. So, there is a human you and a paper you, or as it's commonly known, a straw man. So when it seems like... As our guide, David Robinson, notes in his book, Your parents were fooled into thinking that they needed to register your birth and got a birth certificate for you. So they applied for a birth certificate, not understanding what would happen when they did. Well then, what did happen? They lost ownership of their baby, you, and they allowed a straw man to be created. Weird ideas about ownership of a baby aside, this is what sovereigns think. The birth certificate and basically all other official documents are not actually records of, for example, the birth of a human, but rather represent the assigning of a corporate identity to the new infant, thereby creating a legal person, which has the same name as the human, but it's written in all caps, all without the parent's knowledge or consent. Remember earlier when we mentioned that whether or not a name was spelled in capital letters was super important to the sovereigns? This is why. They are convinced that the difference in letter case is the difference between a free, flesh-and-blood human and an enslaved, artificial, corporate person. Now, why is a holy fuck would the government go through all this trouble, one might ask? Great question. Now, the real answer is they wouldn't and they didn't. But the sovereign explanation is that either the aforementioned Federal Reserve Establishment or Gold Standard Abandonment represented the moment when the country went irretrievably bankrupt. To address this, that similarly aforementioned fake, corporate, 1871 version of the United States powers that be sold the future work product of each and every citizen at birth to them gall-dern foreign bankers to pay interest on their debt. In other words, all of the arguments you see in the news where politicians are fighting about how to keep the national debt under control are pure theater. The debt is in fact serviced by the straw man accounts of each and every American. You may have some other questions at this point. Well, I have one. Holy shit, people believe this? Yes. Yes, they do. And they look down on anyone who doesn't as a sad, ignorant sheep incapable of seeing reality. Wow. How much money do they think the foreign bankers are giving the Fed and or the illegal corporate government per straw man? An even better question. Turns out, the delusionals who promulgate this drivel can't agree. According to the FBI, sovereign estimates range from 630000 to $3 million or more. But the most important thing is that, because all of the above is supposedly true, it's not true. The sovereigns use it to derive all kinds of second-order conclusions. 
And at some point, these straw man ideas got conflated with a separate but related strain of nonsense promulgated by the tax resistance movement, as exemplified by 70s and 80s anti-tax icon Erwin Schiff. There is no income tax. There is no income tax. No! Meet Erwin Schiff. Here's the law. Here's the law. He's 75 years old and quite a character. He sells books, has a website, and does seminars. There is no law requiring anybody to pay income taxes. Teaching you how to avoid Schiff was a man who made money telling U.S. taxpayers that for a variety of reasons, they didn't have to pay taxes. He's dead now. Where did he die again? I'm having trouble remembering. Ooh, ooh, I know, I know. He died in prison on tax evasion charges. Oh, that's right. Well, I'm sure it was a complete coincidence. Regardless, Schiff and his cohorts are the latest in a long line of folks who really, really, fucking really hated the idea of paying income taxes. But they did something about it. Specifically, they created copious, wholly fallacious arguments about why they don't have to pay. And neither does anyone else. They start from a deliberate misreading of the fact that the U.S. uses what is called a voluntary system for reporting and paying income taxes. What this means, per the IRS, is that the taxpayer is able to assess and pay his or her own taxes instead of the government determining the amount owed. That's the voluntary part. The government then periodically checks a sampling of folks' returns, and if they find something amiss, they contact you about it. This part is the dreaded audit. Now, let's see what Schiff has to say about it in his, to be fair, unambiguously titled 1982 book, how anyone can stop paying income taxes. No matter how many dictionaries you check, you'll discover that the word voluntary means something done of one's own free will and without legal obligation. So he understands what the IRS is saying, but counters with a devastating, nuh-uh. He then goes on to cite a number of dictionary definitions and then essentially treats the matter as settled ignoring the usage in the tax code altogether. He also offers the rather intriguing notion that since a tax return can be used in a court of law as evidence against the filer, forcing a citizen to file one is a breach of the Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination. A novel idea. Stupid, but novel. If you're thinking to yourself that surely someone has thought of this already, tried to use it in court, and had it rejected, give yourself a pat on the head and a gold star. The definitive case on this topic is 1927's Sullivan v. United States, which determined that criminals are liable for income taxes on their ill-gotten gains, and was used to convict an array of gangsters and other ne'er-do-wells. Surely Schiff is aware of this precedent. Oh, shit yeah. In fact, he quotes it in his book, selectively, trying to pretend it supports his silly Fifth Amendment assertion, which of course it doesn't. Since we don't have time here to cover the full array of Schiff and Co.'s balderdash, let's just state for the record that essentially all of their arguments have, one after another, been offered in front of a court of law and smacked down. Hard. But the parallels between Schiff's arguments and the later sovereigns are obvious. The fix is in. They are scamming you. You're complicit in helping them turn you into a fool. As Schiff puts it, Americans make themselves liable for taxes by laying a tax on themselves and then paying the tax which is not legally due. Before we leave this topic, it's worth noting that Schiff was both true believer and something of a self-interested party. To quote the disclaimer from the intro to Schiff's book, The author and publisher disclaim any responsibility for any liability or loss incurred as a consequence of any advice or information presented herein. Way to stand 100% behind your ideas, Erwin. And, what the hell, 
Let's throw in a quick quote from his 2015 obituary in The Economist. The hundreds who followed him and declared their income zero soon found themselves in trouble with a threatening letter from the IRS or a lien on their car or their house. He could then offer them, for a price, advice to deal with that too, up to $1,000 for tax court toolkits. No wonder he liked to do business in Nevada, where gambling was a way of life. Let's talk about redemption. In essence, this is the process one uses to separate him or herself from that person's straw man. Once it is accomplished, the person has reclaimed his or her identity as a sovereign citizen and is no longer subject to taxes, registrations, licensing, or any of the other piddly statutes that we alluded to earlier. How does a newly minted sovereign free him or herself, but let's face it, mostly himself, from the clutches of the corporate government, the straw man, and the other hobgoblins of his paranoid imagination. Well, so very, very many sovereign hucksters are so glad you asked. I'm going to talk today about the certificate of life birth and how it applies to your state of affairs. While the government creates a contract with you, even without your knowledge, your consent, and your permission. The day you're born, your parents have to get a birth certificate. Now, once you've got that birth certificate, as you grow up, you will need to get a driver license, you'll need to get a marriage license, you will need to get a dog license, you will need to get a license for everything. To go into business, you need to get... As you know, your straw man is your name in all capital letters. A legal fiction, a capital corporation, the government created in order to tax you, arrest you, make you pay fees, take you to, uh, to legal corporate judicial courts, and control you in all ways. The government cannot touch a flesh and blood man or woman. The government created your straw man at birth to control you and to use your signature to create money out of thin story air. We're gonna do. But it the was story of redemption or you're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. In this program, we'll be discussing what the straw man is, how to take control of your straw man, and why it makes any difference to do so. Your straw man, so it's important to, to separate yourself and know exactly what that is. And that's, that's my whole thing. And it seems like, you know, the most important thing out there um, that people should learn uh, moving forward. Because, because you are the collateral um, for this corporation and you have been your labor basically has been sold to the International Monetary Fund They they basically own your who you think is is, is you. Hi, Good evening or um, good day wherever you are in the world. This is Joanna Johnston and we're here to talk about The mysterious birth certificate dun, 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 dun. The power of your birth certificate. What does the birth certificate do? wipes out all your debt. Why is that? Because everything is prepaid. Everything is prepaid because of your birth certificate bond. Why? Well, I'm here to explain why that is. Um, I have a couple other videos.
Yes, there are perhaps hundreds of loons out there eager to tell desperate and credulous people how to sovereignize themselves in exchange for a pile of that dirty green U.S. currency that their theory insists is totally worthless. Once they pay, customers are instructed to file a variety of forms, both genuine government-issued and completely fabricated, which must be completed in a super-specific way, sent in to the proper authorities, and then all of that person's government-related problems are over. But it's even better than that. Once you've rejected your straw man, basically, you ain't gotta pay shit, ever. Simply cash in on that legendary straw man account, paying out all of your debts by insisting you, the upper and lowercase human, don't owe them. Even if, like, you signed up for them in the first place. You're a sovereign now. Any previous agreements you entered into in your pre-sovereign state don't apply. Your creditors should take it up with the all-caps legal fiction person of your straw man. For example, let's see how our guide, Mr. Robinson, recommends you handle any and all transactions with your bank. You need to remember that any financial institution is a legal fiction and does not actually exist. As a result of this, it can only deal with other legal fictions, essentially other pieces of paper, and it can't have any dealings with a man or a woman as they are not legal fictions. Okay, so banks can't even have dealings with you, the newly freed flesh-and-blood human. So what should you do when, for example, they send you the monthly bill for the mortgage you promised to pay them? Well, sovereigns have a plan for anyone who receives a bill from one of these notorious, fallacious financial institutions. You should demand that they validate the debt and send both a signed invoice and a copy of the contract binding both parties, you and them, in the letter by certified mail so that there is an independent witness to it having been delivered. Also, you should apparently mark your letter without prejudice. Because reasons. When you do this, the bank will probably send a statement of what it wants you to believe is the outstanding amount. You should return this with a polite note saying that a statement is not an invoice, so would they please provide a signed invoice as requested. Also, they want you to tell whomever you borrowed the money from that their contract isn't valid, because it only has your signature on it. See, according to sovereigns, contracts have to have signatures by both parties to be valid. So, let's say you follow this advice. Please don't. What do they expect to happen in this case? That the bank is likely to go silent at this point and stop corresponding. After a couple more weeks, our sovereign is led to believe that the bank will either remain incommunicado or write back to say that the debt is fully discharged. Or, you know, your credit will be ruined, your collateral will be repossessed, and you'll end up in court. By the way, if the bank tries phoning, then just tell them politely that you only wish to deal with this matter in writing and hang up. But behaving like a rip-off artist and then being a dick about it isn't the extent of the wisdom that this book has to share. There's also an explanation of why that's not what you're doing when you follow this advice. Through a truly imaginative and deeply insane series of bold assertions, our author declares that all mortgages are essentially created out of thin air and are not repayments for funds that a bank has made on behalf of the borrower. Rather, the signature on a mortgage makes it a valuable piece of paper which the bank can deposit in its accounts as a credit to the bank for the amount of the loan. Plus, the bank's acting in bad faith. After all, when you apply for a mortgage, the bank gives you an application form, which is set out in such a way that you have to fill out the straw man's name rather than your own. In other words, they make you use those nefarious capital letters. And don't worry about your all-caps friend picking up the tab. He can afford it. When the straw man was incorporated, they assigned a large monetary value to it, possibly $100 million, and they have been trading on the stock market on behalf of the straw man ever since, and you know how many years that has been. 
So very surprisingly, in their opinion, the little fellow is really very rich, and you have just authorized them to take the amount of your loan application from the straw man's account. And this doesn't just apply to mortgages, either. Any debt you incur, before or after you go full sovereign, just follow those previously discussed steps, and the bank will simply back off, realizing it's dealing with a cool customer who knows better than to fall for their all-capital-letters trap. It's amazing, but at some point, reading through sovereign debt-discharging schemes can actually give you the slightest sliver of sympathy for international banks. Here, we should probably note that the man most frequently credited, if that's the right word, with coming up with this scheme is one Roger Elvick. My name is Roger Elvick, and today is the 5th of uh, January. January 2001. New millennium, yeah. Well, then that probably means here that we have a reversal of the poles, repolarizing here the energy that we're dealing with. So maybe that's the reason for the uh, Greenspan here moving so fast here to re reduce the interest rates. I have an idea that it's not going to work for those brokers here like they think it is this time. You see, if these brokers... How has Mr. Elvick spent much of the past 20 years? Why? Knock me over with a feather... He's been successfully prosecuted on multiple occasions for following his own dipshit advice. So we ask you, if the guy who invented this crap keeps getting sent to the slammer for following his own playbook, how dumb you gotta be to follow his example? Spoiler, pretty fucking dumb. So what happens if one actually follows these instructions? Nothing good. In fact, reading through all this material, you're forced to consider the aphorism that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. For example, there's the situation that came up in the aftermath of the financial collapse of 2009, when a huge number of McMansions throughout the most overbuilt sections of the U.S. were suddenly abandoned by owners and developers, and a variety of opportunistic folks made a go of leveraging sovereign gobbledygook to take ownership of these places by essentially squatting in them. The logic is pretty similar to the mortgage nonsense we went through earlier. In some cases, the sovereigns have created something called foreclosure rescue schemes, as noted by the Southern Poverty Law Center, or SPLC's, Bill Moreland in 2015. In these scams, sovereign citizens find homeowners who are in mortgage default to quit claim their deeds with the promise of stopping the foreclosure. Then, extremists collect monthly payments from the homeowners, promising to return the deeds in the future. In other words, these true believer scam artists insist that they can handle the default issues and convince homeowners to start paying the sovereigns instead of the bank. You can probably predict what happens next. Evictions of the residents, but potentially few repercussions for the sovereigns, assuming they can skedaddle out of town. In other cases, sovereigns simply occupied empty houses, declaring themselves owners based on super-legit legal theories that sheeple like you couldn't possibly understand. For example, in a story covered by Susie Kim in the Washington Post back in 2013, a man named Lamont Butler from Bethesda, Maryland, was accused of breaking and entering a mansion. Butler declared the property belonged to him because of his status as a Moorish American national, and that the property belonged to his people and his tribe. He isn't, and it didn't. The owner calls me again and says, the neighbor called their people inside the house, claiming they own the house. And I'm like, what? Lamont Butler, a.k.a. Lamont Maurice L., claimed the mansion for himself. He even provided documents issued by the so-called Moorish National Republic to back it up. Spencer Dew, who studies the movement, says Moorish Americans have long taken pride in being American citizens, but as the group splintered over the decades, some offshoots abandoned that view. 
the vast majority of Moorish communities uh, in America are not involved in any of this sovereign citizen uh, ideology, not involved in fraudulent behavior, not involved in criminal acts. As for Butler, he eventually abandoned the Bethesda mansion, but he still faces charges of burglary, theft, and fraud. He's currently out of Anyway. There were a whole lot of these scenarios in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, where, for example, a sovereign homeowner simply declared the mortgage null and void in the style of Mr. Robinson's advice from earlier, and a far more elaborate scheme had sovereigns declaring ownership of abandoned McMansions and then acting as landlords, charging unsuspecting renters monthly to live in properties the sovereigns didn't own in the first place. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of these phenomena was the fact that many of the sovereigns involved were, like Lamont Butler, African-American. Considering that sovereign ideas are rooted in explicitly racist movements like the Posse Comitatus, this comes as something of a surprise. But we'll return to this topic a bit later. Now, we're going to cover a wide range of other sovereign legal theories in quick succession. Try to keep up. Listen to our last episode, you may remember the legendary phone call placed by Jenna, a sovereign and DUI suspect who refused to pull over for the cops pursuing her unless they met a rather impressive price. Hi, this is Jenna. I don't have the emergency, but the car behind me does. Okay. And I'm trying to figure out what that is because I'm driving 45 on, I believe it's Oxton Road. Okay. And I have a contract with you guys that. Um, if you want to go ahead and declare a false sense of emergency, it's $300,000 per incident. So, ma'am, what kind so of I need to make sure, ma'am, I need to make sure that you guys are willing to pay the, the fee that you already owe before I pull over. This is an example of the sovereign tactic of fee schedules, where they assign an essentially arbitrary, but very high, dollar amount to any and all actions that authorities might take to arrest or incarcerate a sovereign against their will. As noted by the site Rational Wiki, which goes on to deadpan, this does not work out in practice and has attracted penalties in turn. So, sovereigns issue cash demands to any legal authority figures who have the deep misfortune of introducing them to reality. And because one of the places where sovereigns who eschew all forms of government ID are most likely to run headlong into a demand for government ID from a legal authority is the routine traffic stop, well, again, if you heard our last episode, you know this is a recipe for anger, confusion, and unintentional comedy. When it comes to sovereigns and cops, one is reminded of Cool Hand Luke. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Remember, please, that sovereigns believe that auto registration and licenses are just one of those nonsense ideas that are A, only applicable to the nefarious straw man, and B, derived from these non-binding statutes that all of these corporate congresses are so fond of passing. For example, our Mr. Robinson says of auto registrations, The act of applying for registration confirms the physical ownership of the vehicle passes from you, the purchaser who paid the money, to the state. So, who owns it? Why, the corporate government, though your straw man is now the registered owner. They justify this argument by noting that, should you not pay your registration fees, the government will seize the car. Which, you know, 
It will, but it will also seize your car if you forge your own registration documents using highfalutin, sovereign-approved boilerplate. But there's a bigger problem with these traffic stops, since sovereigns will also refuse to acknowledge that they were, in fact, driving. See, they draw a distinction between driving, which they insist involves carrying a passenger for commercial purposes, basically Uber or taxis, while they, who are simply conveying themselves from one place to another on the road using a motor vehicle, are traveling. You'll be shocked to know that the law doesn't see any difference here. But does that stop the sovereigns? Pshaw. To quote the clearly authoritative website The Freedom Articles, Driving is a privilege. Traveling is a right. A privilege is granted by some authority, and equally it can be taken away by some authority. A right can never be abrogated. Our right to travel can never be stripped from us. It is as fundamental to our existence as our right to breathe. Sovereign literature teaches adherents to treat each encounter with the cops as a potential minefield. Our own beloved David Robinson advises readers to avoid this basic police trap. For example, they will ask you, do you understand? But these sneaky underhand people have changed the meaning in legalese to mean, do you stand under me? Meaning... Do you grant me authority over you so that you have to obey whatever I tell you to do? Robinson, and sovereigns generally, are obsessed with legalese, on which more later. And of course, the good advice doesn't stop there. He also insists you should never provide your personal information, including your name, as that places you in a position of voluntary submission by standing under the officer. See, understanding, standing under? No, seriously, that's how they want you to believe the police are using that word. Okay, that is clearly wrong, but again, as is the case with most sovereign thinking, there's a grain of truth struggling for air beneath the mountain of misinformation. Many have noticed that various police departments and local governments have in recent years increasingly leaned on issuing citations to maintain or expand their budgets. This leads to over-policing of piddling infractions, the brunt of which falls most heavily on lower-income folks who are just trying to keep the wheels on, if you'll pardon the expression. On the other side, the cops are simply trying to deliver the stats their bosses demand, to show that they're doing their jobs. In some cases, departments depend on these fees to keep themselves fully funded. If you recall, this was the situation that drove the tragedy and protest in Ferguson, Missouri. But again, the fair observation that some police forces are over-ticketing the people who can least afford it hardly supports a claim like, As each individual police force is a commercial company, in a way like a McDonald's restaurant in strategy, it has no authority to enforce anything, any more than a McDonald's has. Bemoaning the way that capitalism has begun to impact the enforcement of the law does not free one to say the police force is just another fast food joint. Mr. Robinson goes on to assure sovereign readers that individual police officers, who are of course independent contractors working for a for-profit corporation, i.e. your local police, are not protected by their corporate overlords from prosecution under common law. This leads to the familiar sovereign tactic of paper terrorism, of which more momentarily. Anyway, balderdash like this leads to many confusing conversations, many stubborn refusals, many patient reiterations of lawful instructions, and eventually many broken-in car windows and tased sovereigns, all of which inevitably ends up in court, where the real fun begins. As noted by the SPLC in their article, A Dictionary of the Peculiar, which is, by the way, an invaluable sovereign-to-English, English-to-sovereign translation guide, sovereigns insist that when you walk into a court in the United States, your case is being heard under admiralty law. Wait, the law of the sea? One and the same. See, since we went off the gold standard in 33, no one can pay debts with real money anymore. 
Thus, foreign bankers, straw men, you know the drill. So U.S. courts therefore cannot operate under common law because the whole unreal corporate nature of everything makes them operate under commercial law instead. Hold on a second. You just said they believe courts use admiralty law, not commercial law. Yeah, but according to sovereigns, the two are one and the same. Commercial law, the law related to business, which is presumably a land-based concern mostly, and the law of the sea predominantly conducted on boats, I suppose? These two things are exactly the same to the sovereigns. Why exactly? Again, reasons. Let me explain something to you. There are two kinds of law on the earth, basically two kinds of law. Uh, Roman civil law and maritime admiralty. And the civil law is referred to as the law of the land. But there is a higher law that governs the whole earth. But when you talk about the maritime admiralty law, what you're talking about is the law of water, the law of banks. Banking law is called maritime admiralty. And consequently, this is why, incidentally, the Statue of Liberty could not be put on land in this country. It had to be put in a port. It had to be put in water. Why? Because it's not the Statue of Freedom. It's a Statue of Liberty. Liberty is what a sailor gets when you pull into port. Because the admiral gives the captain on the board the ship ownership of your body. You ask permission to leave. If he allows you to leave, you have liberty. You don't have freedom. No, honestly, I don't know. But helpfully, the sovereigns say you can tell when you're in one of them dang old admiralty courts because they've got this nefarious fringe around the outside of the American flag. You know that yellow stringy stuff that you've seen on flags in the past? That's a dead giveaway that you're dealing with a commercial slash admiralty court. But it doesn't mean that. Come on, what do you think? If you'd like to hear what this actually represents, let's ask four-time champion of the Most Fun to Pronounce competition, last name and occupation division, John Harvigson, vexillologist. It means flag expert. The fringe on an American flag actually is just a decoration. It's not part of the flag. There are individuals who believe that that flag actually has political significance. However, from all of the research I've done, the indication is that a fringe is there only to make the flag look prettier but it doesn't have any symbolic meaning. Those who do find more meaning in the fringe believe that a fringe indicates that this is a, an admiralty court and that it is not a court under the Constitution, that there's a shadow uh, government in existence that is not lawful. However, um, if you try to tell a judge that he is not a valid judge because of the fringe on his flag, you might have a problem. The next issue that stands between a sovereign and an accurate understanding of how the legal system works is often his insistence that he alone can grasp the arcane linguistic tricks and traps that lawyers and judges use on you to maintain their many-leveled charade. Turning again to Mr. Robinson. Legalese is a secret language invented to trick you. It uses English words, but attaches secret meanings to those words with the sole intention of stopping you from believing that what they are saying to you has nothing to do with the normal meaning in the English language. Their purpose is to cheat you and rob you. 
So how can a common law abiding, statute flouting sovereign possibly stand against this kind of conspiracy? As is always the case with sovereigns, there are plenty of folks out there who will tell you all of the secret incantations, forms, and instructions that will help you overcome your imaginary enemies. But among all of these pretenders, there can be only one king. The Beatles, plus Beethoven, times Michael Jackson, to the power of Jesus, the Einstein, Newton, Hawking, Galileo of sovereign language kooks, is the one, the only, David Wynn Miller. It's really tough to resist the urge to turn this whole episode into a fucking clinic on why David Wynn Miller is the greatest conspiracy theorist maniac of all time. But luckily, he's so batshit on so many topics that I'm going to get the chance to take bites of this sweet, crazy apple for years worth of other episodes. One of the first things to know is that the name you're imagining in your mind right now is not the correct rendering of Mr. Miller's name. In fact, I'm sure it would enrage him to be referred to as Mr. Miller. So we're going to phonetically read out the way that his name appears on his website to give you a taste of the lunacy. According to his website, his name and title is probably written out as colon plenipotentiary hyphen judge colon. That part is in all caps. David hyphen win colon Miller period. And that part is in sentence case. So let's allow the man to introduce himself via an overview of his many accomplishments recorded at a 2012 seminar. Oh, and you're welcome. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Well, my, uh, as you know, my, my name is David Wynn Miller, but I punctuate my name. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Benjamin Franklin, all punctuated the name same as I did. They were all 34 degree master masons. Now, I don't know if there's any masons in the crowd, but I am a 92nd degree mason. Uh, I know you've been taught that masonry goes to 33 and 34 degrees for grandmasters. The reason I'm a 92nd degree mason is because in 1988 I broke the math interface in all 5,000 languages, proving that language is a linear equation in algebra. This hasn't been done in 8,500 years of written language. When I did so, I was able to unlock the two-thirds of all the words missing from all languages in the world, and I can write any sentence in any language, frontwards and backwards, with the same meaning. Once this was discovered, it completely, uh, 48 hours after I published on the Internet, I had two Secret Service agents from Washington at my front door going, do you realize what you've done? You've just disqualified every treaty, trust, and contract in 8,500 years on planet Earth. I says, well... Our interviewee from last episode, Mark Potok, wrote a hugely entertaining article on the man he dubbed Full Colin Miller way back in 2003. You should read the whole thing, available on the Southern Poverty Law Center's website, but highlights include... That Miller declared himself the king of Hawaii back in 1996, when, apparently, he turned Hawaii into a verb... Also, remember that whole admiralty court, law of the sea thing? Well, according to Miller, Maritime law applies worldwide because, quote, Earth is a vessel in a sea of space. And finally, because we really have to rein ourselves in when it comes to Miller, this piece of deliciousness. Miller discovered back in 1998 the mathematical interface in the truth that certifies all 5,000 languages frontwards and backwards. Oh my god, do we love this guy. Anyway, he's one of the many sovereigns who offer tips on how fellow unreality enthusiasts can talk their way out of various courtroom proceedings. And to be fair, it works out great, in the sense that it leads to hilarious nonsense that we can recapitulate for your amusement here. Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Sarah McNamee for the state. Good morning. My name is William Allen Richard Sequacy McGates of Dennis. 
I stand before you today under duress, and I object to entering your area of the courtroom. But I will do so out of respect for you as a person, and not as my true authority, as I am a sovereign child of God. Before I enter your area of the courtroom, I respectfully ask you respect my sovereign teachings and beliefs as well. Based upon the arguments of counsel and a review of the motion that was filed and the arguments made, the court finds that the court does have jurisdiction in this matter. The court addresses on your, on your claim that the, the um, citations violate your right to your constitutional right to travel. The court finds that the constitutional right to travel and under the cases that you have cited, uh, specifically the last case that you have mentioned in your memo, uh, Zobo versus Williams specifically state that the right to travel is the right to travel between states or in some of the cases that you talked about it was travel between the United States and another country. Uh, it does not talk about the right to drive uh, without any regulation in any vehicle. So. I don't find that those arguments are, are convincing in terms of what I see I never agreed nor signed papers stating that I pledged allegiance to any government. And in fact, I am a member of the Shire Society. Are you familiar with the Shire Society? I've heard of it. Okay, and part the fourth of the Shire Society Declaration states explicit voluntary association is the only means by which binding obligations may be created and claims based on association or relationships to which any party did not consent are empty and invalid. I have never consented to any currently recognized government, so it is my position that RSA 261.40 is invalid and the entire vehicle registration code is invalid. Chapman, the only evidence presented to this court is that Mr. Perry was operating a motor vehicle on a public way in the state of New Hampshire and that the vehicle was not registered. No other evidence has been presented to this court. And so a, year, a motion to dismiss has been denied uh, and the motion uh, to receive an exemption from the requirement to register a personal automobile is also been denied based upon a lack of any evidence to support either a motion and the charge of uh, failing and neglecting to have the vehicle that you were operating registered in accordance with law contrary to RSA 261-40. Uh, I do find you guilty of uh, violating that charge. So, sir, you're currently set for a January 5th jury trial date. Is that what you're wanting? Actually, I'm trying to claim sovereignty at this moment, so I don't need to do any kind of trial in the future because that would be damaging or injury against my person. And I'm trying to avoid that kind of conflict. And then it says down at the bottom that these schedules available upon request and I can have that available if, if this is going to be pursued. And, and sir, you, you, um, you're, you're charged with an offense and you're at the stage in the proceedings that it's set for a jury trial based on your not guilty plea? Correct. And if you were to read this, it would say that I am not performing the function of the government, nor do I have an obligation to the government, and I do not fall under its jurisdiction. And so what I'm telling you is that there's going to be a jury trial on January 5th, and you can choose to be there or not? Right. And but so if you choose not to be there, what can happen is the trial can proceed in your absence? Okay. Um, then the last thing I have to say is that I need to, um, to 
for you to provide proof of the contrary, provide the payroll records and or proof of the rights that you're claiming I do not have within 10 business days. And I have no idea what you're talking about. Our favorite clip comes from Judge Hurley of Broward County Court in Florida, who is very clearly out of fucks to give. I informed your attorney he knows about your court date, sir. Thank you. David, right. David Hall. Mr. Hall has declined the services of the public defender, Your Honor. All right. Hold on, Mr. Hall. Sir, you've been charged with DUI expired tag, attaching a plate, not a sign, license suspended, failed to drive in a single lane. Just give me a moment, sir. Let me look at your driving record. Okay. If you want to tell me about something. I'd like to state ahead. some things. Go ahead. I'd like to state some things for the record. Thank you, Judge. Uh, Judge John Hurley, I do accept your oath of office here today for the record, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Sir, today I'm appearing as the agent and settler for David Hall. Okay. Okay. Could you get Mr. Hall for me then, sir? Where is he? I go by that name, sir. My name sounds exactly like the defendant's, and I'm here to settle that matter today. So are you and David Hall one and the same person? I'm not a person. I'm an individual. David Hall is a person. Okay. I am are the agent to that Are you and David name. Hall one and the same individual? I go by the name David Hall, sir, and okay. I'm here about that matter today. Okay. So, so you go by the name David Hall. Okay. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, the person who goes by the name of David Hall is standing in front of you. I'm the individual. You're I am an individual, individual, not a person. You're not a person. Yes, David Hall is a person. I am a private individual. David Hall is a person under color of law, sir. Okay. Where's David Hall then? The person David Hall. He exists on paper, sir. David Hall is a corporation. I am here in my real capacity as the private individual for that name. Okay, and I'm sir, here about that matter. You're the, and private, I'm happy to you're the private individual, David Hall. I'm the settler, sir. You're the settler, I'm the settler. David Hall. I'm the settler to David Hall, sir. Well, are you the private happy individual, to... David Hall? Yes. Good. Okay. We got that straight. We agree on that. Okay. Now, David May Hall, I, sir? David Hall, the private individual. I'm looking at your driving record right now. Multiple failures to pay traffic tickets. For the, uh, for the individual, David Hall, not the person. I appear here today as the settler, agent, not the person, but the individual. And I, I, I don't think I should have, you understand the so difference the between a person and an the individual. Agent, and you're the individual, but you're not the person. Is that correct? Correct. Got correct. It. Let me, I'm going to write that down. I think, uh, you know, I remember, I think it was last week you told me this too. And, and I was a little uncertain, but I, I it's all become very clear now. Now, okay, the settler, the agent, the individual, but he's not the person. Okay, so now the settler, the agent, the individual, and maybe even the person, David Hall, uh, has been charged with DUI. A DUI, while the settler, the agent, and even the person, David Hall, was on was out on bond on two cases, one felony and one misdemeanor, for license suspended. So the court believes that the settler, the agent, the individual, and even the person, David Hall, represents, are you, are you? A, uh, represents a danger to the community because the settler, the agent, the individual, and even the person continues to drive without a valid driver's license, uh, in fact, a suspended driver's license in the state of Florida. And uh, so that being said, the court is going may, to- May I make a correction, sir? Go ahead, sir. Yes, I'm traveling. Traveling. Okay. 
All right. So the settler, the agent, the individual, or the person, David Hall, for traveling on a public highway or public road in the state of Florida, was allegedly doing so without a valid driver's license and has done it several times in the past. So today... This is alleged, sir? Yes, sir, it is alleged. Allegedly? Yes, sir. Thank you. So today, the court's going to say you're, uh, the settler, the agent, the individual's bond, and even the person's bond today, on count four, $10,000, because the settler, the agent, the individual, and the person has not stopped driving, even though the settler, the agent, the individual, and the person continues to drive without a driver's license. Both cases will cause the settler, the agent, the individual, and even the person, David Hall, not to be able to be released from the Broward County Jail until further notice of the court. Where is my remedy, sir? Well, whose remedy are you asking for? The settler, the agent, I, I, the individual, or the person? I'm asking for the Wait, opportunity. Who are you speaking on behalf of right now? Sir, I don't understand that question. I well, believe that you're trying to confuse well, me now. No, I'm not. I'm no. simply separating myself from the person. They are two different entities, right, and I know the that. The court is not viewing you as two different people. The court is viewing you as well, one why not, entity sir? for the purpose of these cases. Then what entity are you referring to me as? I'm because referring, to referring to me as the David Hall, who's the settler, the agent, the individual, and the person. I'm not the person, sir. Okay, when I am you not see the, the person, person, David Hall. Tell him he's not leaving jail either, all right? Sir, then may I ask Okay, so the sovereigns have an absolutely horrendous record in terms of their arguments working in court. But to be fair to them, they have been terribly successful in another sense, using standard legal proceedings in the service of nonsense claims to make a lot of people's lives absolutely miserable. At some point, various groups of sovereigns saw they were getting nowhere in legitimate courtrooms and started forming their own common law courts. The Anti-Defamation League provides a nice synopsis of this phenomenon, which was popular in the 1990s. In that decade, these pretend but super serious courts did everything from granting divorces to issuing arrest warrants against judges. But of course, since these groups' whole goddamned raison d'etre was to make a big stink and intimidate legitimate authority figures, they were unsurprisingly easy to infiltrate, raid, and shut down. If only the same could be said about another sovereign tactic against legal authorities, the phenomenon known as paper terrorism. Back in our third episode, our interviewee mentioned that members of the Posse Comitatus became notorious for filing fictitious legal documents that were designed to immiserate anyone who stood in their way. Paper terrorism? where they would file writs or liens or whatnot against government officials. When they went to sell a house, they found that there was a lien placed against the house. Nobody becomes aware of it. You have to sell it, and then all of a sudden you've got this hassle that you have to go through. And of course, all these things got thrown out the minute they were brought into court and came to the light of day. But, you know, what it did is cause people hassles. Who wants to buy a house that's got a lien on? The Sovereign Citizens Movement has gleefully continued this tradition, filing a bewildering array of legal documents against anyone with the temerity to enforce the law as it exists outside of sovereign fantasy land. Or, for that matter, anyone with the nerve to point out that their theories are completely full of it. Again, quoting the ADL. Filing frivolous lawsuits and liens against public officials, law enforcement officers, and private citizens has remained a favored harassing strategy. These paper attacks intimidate the targets and clog up a court system that sovereign citizens believe is illegitimate. For example, the FBI recounted a story in which a sovereign in 2010 filed 10 separate documents in two months in a dispute over a $20 three-year dog license. The prosecutor, who presumably had better things to do, dropped the case, and the sovereign declared victory, crediting the outcome to the validity of her claims 
rather than the fact that no one wants to deal with a complete asshole. What's the result of all this nonsense? Well, imagine that you had the breathtakingly enormous balls to actually say any of this to an overworked cop or judge. Got that image in your mind? Pretty ugly picture, right? Well, that's about how it works out for the sovereigns. Maybe it's easy for those disposed to believe sovereign ideas to dismiss those who disparage those ideas as godless, communist, atheist libtards. But even people who are much closer to sovereigns on the ideological spectrum think these ideas are crackpot at best, dangerous at worst. Bill Kump, a lawyer and the author of Sovereign Citizens vs. Christian Citizens, Separating the Wheat from the Chaff, makes it incredibly clear that he is a conservative of the purest race serene. For those who follow the hard right, he's a fan of both disgraced Senate candidate Judge Roy Moore and former Arizona Sheriff Joe Apio. But however right-tilted Mr. Kump may be, he seems dumbfounded by the sovereigns and the destruction and self-destruction they leave in their wake. The whole movement is almost pathetically naive. Aside from its legal absurdity, the real pity is that these tactics never work as planned, except for the con men and hucksters who make huge profits from them and the political extremists who leverage belief in these theories into converts to their cause. Wow, nicely put. So what does Mr. Kump think about sovereigns using these arguments in court? Most people would take a look at sovereign claims and ask themselves just how gullible a person would have to be to believe in them. Pay your debts off with worthless bonds drawn on your magic secret strawman social security account? Have any civil or criminal charges dismissed immediately by knowing the magic words? And just quit paying your taxes altogether? If this sounds too good to be true, you're right, it is. But amazingly, seemingly intelligent people continue to buy into it. The fact of the matter is that there is not a single recorded case of so-called sovereign citizen legal theory prevailing in an American court of law. Yeah, what he said. Hopefully by this point we've provided a pretty thorough view of what the sovereigns think is a legitimate legal theory, and in the preceding episode we've offered a pretty solid review of the white supremacist bona fides of the posse comitatus, the militias, and all of the other groups who preceded the sovereigns. But given all of that, the whole story still has a sharp left turn coming up, and for that we turn to our letters section. Over the past several episodes, I may have earned a well-deserved reputation for writing indulgent, self-aggrandizing letters to myself, assigning them to various pseudonyms, and then convincing my charming 10-year-old daughter to read them aloud. Again, this is due to the fact that we produced a number of episodes before our launch, when none of you could possibly have known how desperate you were to correspond with us. Still, my intention continues to be that we will have robust correspondence from real live listeners, ideally many who are well over the age of majority. And let me take this opportunity to invite you to send in your thoughts and questions to the paranoid strain, no spaces, at gmail.com. Ideally, we'd like you to record a quick voice memo, attach it to your email, Email and send it along. Just be sure to give yourself a pseudonym, like Fearful Jesuit, Dana Unicorn, or C. Estes Cafalver, because that's how we roll around these parts. Anywho, I am very pleased to announce that we have our first ever Honest to God listener correspondence. Yes, I neither wrote nor recorded the following message. It was sent in independently by a real listener just like you. Okay, full disclosure. This is a guy he met in real life. And yes, he asked him to send in a message that would help to introduce the next segment of the show. But the wording and sentiment is the unedited intent of a listener. So I'm inclined to let him have just this one. What do you think? With no further ado, 
Here goes. Dear Paranoid Strain, this is the cacophonous Cistercian calling to express my gratitude for your show. I've really enjoyed it. I grew up in Northern California in the 80s and early 90s, and I've watched the sovereign citizen movement and the militia movement and all these things grow, and I've always felt like they were rooted almost exclusively in white supremacy. However, recently I've noticed non-white people espousing the sovereign citizen nonsense, and I wondered what about the movement has changed and how it's spread into new communities. Uh, Thanks again for the show. I look forward to your answer. Cistercian, you've opened up a truly fascinating aspect of the modern incarnation of the Sovereign Movement. Remember in the last episode how we mentioned that the Sovereign Movement's roots in racism and anti-Semitism had sort of dissipated between the 80s and early 2000s? Well, it truly does seem that the Sovereign crazies have honestly become vastly less racist over the past 20 years. This is one of those take-a-silver-lining-where-you-can-find-it situations. So, on the bright side, Sovereigns are much less racist. On the other hand... Far more African Americans, especially those displaced in the 2008-2009 housing crisis, have adopted some deeply stupid sovereign ideas, since they're no longer presented as a whites-only proposition. Turning, once again, to Mr. Kump. Sovereign legal theory, the origins of which can be undeniably traced to racism and anti-Semitism, is now making major inroads in black communities, particularly in the black separatist and black nationalist movement. Espousing a bizarre mixture of outlandish racial origin theories and recycled sovereign legal theory, these groups allege that the United States government has no authority over them because they are black indigenous people and white people only have legal jurisdiction over their ancestral European countries. They fail to explain why they themselves should have authority since their ancestors came from Africa after the Europeans arrived in America. If you've been following these extremist episodes, you know how deeply the sovereign racism strain ran. I mean, for Christ's sake, Bill Gale, the founder of the OG Posse Comitatus, went to incredible lengths to cover up the fact that he, the leader of a virulently anti-Semitic movement, was in fact a self-hating Jew. And Gordon Call got into a shootout coming back from a meeting where he was standing up for his right to live in an imaginary world without any Jews or blacks. So what the hell happened to keep the nonsense powers of these ideas while seemingly stripping them of their racism? Essentially, Sovereign ideas began wending their way through the halls of courtrooms and jail, passing from white to black defendants and inmates, thereby becoming a united colors of Benetton multiracial conspiracy theory at last. Here again, Mr. Kump takes up the story. Sovereign citizen defenses are also becoming increasingly popular among criminal defendants of all races who challenge the authority of the court to try them for murder or robbery because the judge refuses to produce a copy of their oath of office or the American flag in the courtroom has a gold fringe and thus negates the jurisdiction of the whole proceeding. And sure enough, this crap is becoming deeply embedded in certain African-American extremist and separatist groups. Kump offers an example from the so-called Moore's Order of the Round Table. Central to their thesis is a rejection of the 14th Amendment, claiming it merely created a set of artificial persons. They refer instead to actual treaties made between the United States and Morocco, the traditional home of the Moors, in the late 18th century, which described a category of free Moor who could not be enslaved or subjected to U.S. law. They advise Moors not to cooperate with the police or the courts. Government officials, he says, know they have no jurisdiction over Moors. And as long as Moors refuse to comply, there is nothing the courts can do. 
The idea here is that, since the so-called Moors are the only God-given inheritors of these lands, all others, including whites, can never be sovereign. So if an African-American person shows up to court and is the only black person there, that individual can stand silently and the court won't be able to do anything to them. Of course, in practice, those espousing Moorish beliefs are seldom silent, though they seem just as ineffectual as their white, sovereign courtroom counterparts. And it needs to be supported with a certification, an affidavit, whatever it is. Say, can you treat that now? Notice of motion. This and is exactly that? what I told Cheyenne Matoda Kushanir L. Uh, for the record, man, which uh, which rule, authority, courtroom rule, uh, statute are you using? It's in the court rules. I do not address recall. that matter. It is in the court rules. I do not recall, and I'm not going to look up for you the exact court rule, but the court rule set out the procedure that you must follow. Uh, objection, ma'am. I'm, I'm not a part of your society. I'm not subject to your courtroom rules, and you have not proven jurisdiction. And now, I will never address the issue of jurisdiction until and unless the appropriate application is made before the court, because filing either an affidavit that's notarized or an affidavit that's not notarized does not bring it before the attention of this court. Objection. Sir, three misdemeanor warrants, 500 per count. How about Jonathan Rounds? Hello, 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 hello. Excuse me. Yes, sir. I sent you an affidavit pertaining to my status as a sovereign. I asked for a declaration of authority order given to you by the GA-15 Supreme Justice on the Fourth Amendment oath. I asked for you to clarify for me your validity of your status, your nationality, where did you deprive your government from. I asked for all these things I submitted through certified letter through the postmaster. I have not had any, any response to that. The officers arrested me. They signed the, they signed the tickets on their own. They applied all of these KPSs to it to try to get me in a fraudulent, so it's a fraud against my estate, a misrepresentation, and racketeering. I would like to send a motion to take it to the Supreme Court immediately. So I'll be needing to be released on the R&R so I can go and address these issues as soon as possible. Yes, sir. Your bond's 15. Um, How about It's previous ruling and will make a determination that until a licensed practitioner in the state of New Jersey is substitutes in for Mr. L, um, the court will uh, enter an order that Mr. Uh, Kiesler will remain as counsel. Objection. For the record. It's overruled. Objection. For the record. I have not authorized the Office of Public Defense or John J. Kiesler to take this matter. Okay. Represent this Very matter. well. The author, for the record. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Objection. For the record, the corporate body politic that has authorized the Aboriginal Law Firm's Secretary of State authorization number is 003. The fact that you listen to me. Listen to me. Mr. Mr. That's it. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of this now. If you come in, this, in here again with this mess, and I'm going to call it mess on the record, you're going to be, you're going to be arrested. We're done. 
As noted earlier, the migration of these ideas into the lives of many African Americans hasn't turned out any better for them than it did for white enthusiasts. But perhaps the strangest story of all took place in a Baltimore courtroom and involved defendants in a capital murder case. Kevin Carey, in his article Too Weird for the Wire in the Washington Monthly, tells the story of four defendants accused of conspiring to kill rival drug dealers who suddenly and unexpectedly dove headfirst into a sovereign theory-based defense which the courts and prosecution proved woefully unprepared to defend against. My name's Kevin Carey. I work at a think tank in Washington, D.C. called New America. I direct the uh, education policy program. I write about it for the Upshot section of the New York Times, and I write for... uh, uh, magazines sometimes, including Washington Monthly. But the very first, actually, magazine feature I ever wrote was published uh, almost 10 years ago, I guess it was in 2008. And it was a piece called uh, Too Weird for the Wire. And it was about um, four African-American defendants in the Baltimore uh, federal court system on trial for uh, murder, conspiracy, racketeering, drug dealing, obstruction of justice, uh, just a whole raft of charges and began to mount this, what the lawyers in the courthouse at the time called the flesh and blood defense, which was very much rooted in the posse comitatus ideology. And it was was essentially an assertion that the federal courts had no jurisdiction over them and therefore could not or would not be able to sentence them. By all accounts, the four people involved were and are terrible people who should be in jail, cold-blooded murderers. And and there was never really any doubt based on the evidence. Two different women who had nothing to do with the Baltimore drug trade, who were just in the wrong wrong place at the wrong time, uh, one of whom was murdered in front of her children, uh, in in front of her apartment building, again, for like no reason other than just plain bad luck. So it's good that they're in prison. That said, one of the most important things about this case is that they were being charged in federal court. The reason I found out about it was because my wife was a clerk in the federal court and came home from work one day and said, you would not believe the crazy things that are happening in the court. Baltimore is, of course, as any viewer of The Wire would know, was then, back in the early 2000s, and remains today uh, an an exceptionally violent city. The murder rate is much, much higher there than in other cities, particularly on the eastern seaboard, particularly in New York. And so the public officials and the justice system were grappling with this and uh, trying very hard to something about it. This was also during the uh, Bush administration when John Ashcroft was the attorney general and was very much of a uh, law and order mindset. And so after committing all of these crimes for which they were being charged and arrested, the federal government came in and basically took the cases over. So instead of being charged in state court, they were charged in federal court. And the reason was completely understood in the courthouse, you get a different jury. So if you are charged in Baltimore, Baltimore City, you get a jury of your peers, which is mostly other African-American people, probably like you. If you're charged in federal court, you still go to court in Baltimore. The federal courthouse is right downtown near the Inner Harbor. The jury comes from the whole state, which means that you get mostly a jury of white people, many of whom live all the way out in the western panhandle of Maryland or over on the eastern side near the ocean. A completely different jury of people who have much less sympathy or understanding of the, the lives and context in which the, uh, any alleged crimes were committed. It's also the case that the federal government has a, an enormous arsenal of things that it can charge you with. Not only were the defendants charged with murder for the five people that they killed, they were charged with racketeering because it was alleged that the five of them were a criminal conspiracy because they had a side business making uh, rap music uh, records together. And actually the lyrics of some of the, the songs that they had produced and sold were introduced as evidence in the trial because the prosecutor said that they were 
were actually describing the crimes that occurred. But because they were charged under a racketeering statute, they were all charged with all of the murders because they were all part of the organization. So one of the murders actually occurred while three of the men were already in prison. But they were charged with those murders, too, because the prosecutor said they were still part of the organization while they were in prison. And so therefore, because one of their friends killed two people, that they also were responsible for that. The prosecutors even went so far as to charge them with obstruction of justice for using the flesh and blood defense. You know, all the lawyers that I talked to were like, are you kidding me? Like you're, you're charging someone with a crime for the manner in which they choose to defend themselves in court. There are, uh, I think, three scenes in the article uh, that describe them in front of the court. The one at the end, I actually saw myself in person. The one that, that begins the article, I kind of reconstructed from the transcripts. Basically, you know, it's a very kind of low key, almost like prosaic process. It's, it's very bureaucratic. You know, there's not a lot of drama. There's no one there. It's not like a packed courtroom. No one cares about these crimes. No one really cares about these people. There's plenty of room in the courthouse, to, the, but it is essentially empty. These, all of this happens in almost complete anonymity relative to the rest of the world, which I think matters in a, a certain way. So, so they show up and it's very much just, you know, another hearing where there's a, bunch, a lot of procedure to work through. When all of a sudden, the uh, the defendants stand up and start essentially reciting memorized speeches in which they say things like, I am not a defendant. This court lacks territorial jurisdiction over me. When the judge would refer to one of them as Mr. Gardner, he would correct the judge and say, my name is Sean Earl Gardner, which was his name. And this was just baffling. To, it was just completely outside of the norm. No one understood what was going on. Nobody knew what they were talking about. They were no longer cooperating with their defense attorneys who didn't understand what they were doing. The judge was like, what is going on? And so eventually they would just sort of shut down the process and kind of sent them back to the jail where they were being held and then kind of confirmed with the attorneys and said, like, what on earth are your clients doing? And the defense attorneys were like, we had no idea that was going to happen. We literally have, do not know what that, any of that meant. And so that was one of the first cases where African-American defendants in the Baltimore federal courthouse were asserting this flesh and blood defense, which has its roots in the Posse movement, which, as everyone quickly understood the irony of, is this movement that is uh, founded in white supremacy and anti-Semitism. Your article did some really great work by explaining who some, maybe the key figure was, at least in Baltimore, in terms of being the person who brought the stack of documents that kind of spread like a meme-style virus through all of the defendants. Michael Burpee, could, was he a white man or an African-American? So I never met Michael Burpee. I, I spoke to his attorney, but I think it's it's very, very likely that Michael Burpee was a, an African-American who had been convicted on drug charges. I think he was smuggling drugs from Florida to Maryland. And so he had been in the federal prison system already and had, had already been convicted and had gotten a very long sentence. Um, he had already been convicted of uh, federal drug charges. The, the gears of justice grind pretty slowly. He had a lot of time in his hands. And these posse comitatus flesh and blood documents were already in wide circulation with the federal prison system. Because, again, Baltimore wasn't the only place where the federal government had decided that it was going to really aggressively intervene in what is, you know, for a long time traditionally been a very uh, state-focused enterprise. You know, states are traditionally the uh, level of government at which criminal justice happens in this country, not the federal government for violent crimes. But, again, in response to the war on drugs and, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing and a lot of things that had happened, the federal government was putting more and more people in prison. You almost had like a nationwide circulatory system throughout 
this federal penal system, right? So when everybody was confined to their own state, it was probably harder for information to move around. But once you're in the federal prison system, they can move you from here to there and anywhere. And so I think that kind of opened up some new arteries where these memes and ideas, you know, again, which were mostly transported on pieces of paper back then, could all of a sudden sort of show up in the city of Baltimore. So Michael Burpee essentially is sort of the patient zero for Baltimore of these ideas. So we have our four defendants and our judge, as you narrate, goes in and like figures out what's going on along with the defense attorneys and and they start tracking this backward. These guys did not stop even after they were informed that their arguments were complete, utter, just gibberish. There's a great scene where the judge is just talking to them about the irony of the fact that they are using an argument that essentially is negating the value of the 14th Amendment that actually was the amendment that ensured the citizenship of their ancestors. So um, there's all of these levels of irony. What was the practical effect for both Michael Burpee and these defendants? What actually happened because of their outbursts? Yeah, well, it kind of worked is the thing. You know, Burpee, he's already been convicted of these these one set of crimes. He already has a long sentence. They're trying to put him up on some other charges. He's the flesh and blood guy. He's telling everyone to do this. And then they drop the federal charges against him. We think basically because they're like, the dude's going to be in prison for 27 years anyway. But what that sends the signal to everyone is, oh, well, okay, it works. Like Burpee said, you do all this stuff and he did it and they dropped the charges against him. And so now all of a sudden, like the relatives of these people are paying thousands of dollars to scam artists who are running websites to kind of, you know, it's almost like a real estate scam, but for getting out of jail where, you know, for only $4,000, you can go to a special seminar where we give you the secret to getting out of jail. And what happens is it just makes everything complicated, right? Because particularly in a capital case, and I think that's, that's important, in a capital case, the level of process and protection is like degrees of magnitude bigger than for any other kind of case, as it should be. So, you know, you get better lawyers. There are a lot more protections. Everything is just sort of amped up. And because they were doing this flesh and blood thing and they were not cooperating in their own defense, the prosecutors became worried that it would open it up to appeal, right, that they would essentially sabotage their own defense by refusing to be defended and and trying to flesh and blood the whole thing. But then if they were convicted, they would be able to come back around and appeal on the grounds of inadequate defense. Who knows if that would have worked or it wouldn't have worked. But there again, there are lots of avenues of appeal. These are very expensive trials. They're very time consuming. Some of them had already been convicted and had gotten life in prison without parole on their murder charges in state court. So again, this this was a case where the, the Ashcroft Justice Department was looking at criminal cases where state prosecutors had decided not to seek the death penalty. Maryland is not a death penalty friendly state. It has the death penalty or it had it at the time. I think I don't think it does now, but it only put like five people to death in 25 years. So it was just, it is a liberal state. Um, it's not Texas. So the federal government was looking at states like that and it was re-indicting people who had already been convicted and gotten life in parole just to get the death penalty. That was the only reason they were doing it. And so eventually they dropped the death penalty charges against these guys. And so again, in an odd kind of way, um, it sort of worked. In terms of human psychology and the way that this story would naturally play, you've got a lot of people who don't have a lot of access to information, who see the world obviously working in such a way as to advantage white people and not them. And they have this theory, 
that they've got the secret words that white people use to get out of trouble, and they work. There is, I, I would assume, no way to ever put that genie back in the bottle. Like, that is basically just a thing that now exists as a potential experience that you can have in uh, in a criminal court, wherever these ideas appear. No, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, it's it's been interesting how, over time, like, almost regardless of the circumstances or the race or the background, People who feel oppressed by the federal government, right or wrong, have just been attracted to these ideas. It's like a, a vulnerability to a disease of some kind that can come in different places. So whether you're a you know a farmer who can't make his interest payments in the 70s because of interest rates and commodity prices, or a, an African American man in Baltimore, there is there seems to be something distinct about the feeling that the United States federal government itself is out to get you, where if you have that feeling, if, if it's that feeling of powerlessness, and, and these guys really were as powerless as they could be. They were anonymous. They were powerless. They had no resources. They had no community. Everything was stacked against them. Everything from the, you know, I mean, the, the judge was black, but pretty much no one else was, right? I mean, you walk into those courthouses, the marshals are white, their lawyers are white. It is a white person's world, like very, very clearly that they're just being kind of shuffled through. There's, so there is no alternative. So as, as, as crazy as it sounds, it's better than nothing, and nothing is what they have. It's empowering in a way, right? The, the tenets of posse comitatus, which I think, as you said before, when I was writing it, people would be like, well, but explain it to me? Like, why? And I was like, I can't, because it doesn't actually make sense. Kevin Carey, whose self-chosen pseudonym is Grover Cleveland, thank you very much for being on our show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, we've covered a whole lot of ground here, but as promised, we're now just about ready to tell you the full, definitive story of why Wesley Snipes went to jail, which involves a little touch of just about everything we've already discussed. Without further ado, then, let's get started. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. Heard you killed more people than the plague. How about that? The way they call you Dr. Death. Used to be a medic. But that was a long time ago. So why'd you get locked away? Tax evasion. As we established at the beginning of this episode, the main reason you haven't seen Passenger 57's name on any marquees lately is because from the end of 2010 until mid-2013, he was doing time in a club-fed prison for tax evasion. Yes, the same charge the feds used to bring down Al Capone brought down Willie Mays Hayes. But the more you dig, the more this reads as less of a tax evasion case and more of a holy shit, what is this guy talking about case. In a normal tax evasion situation, like the Al Capone thing, your miscreant has simply tried to avoid taxes that somewhere, deep in his evil gangster heart, he knows he actually owes. In Capone's case, of course, they were taxes on the profits from illegal activities, so it's understandable that he wouldn't have paid them. But the point is, Capone, while he did intend to pay taxes on his ill-gotten gains at least agreed with the government that there was, in fact, such a thing as taxes and that people could, in fact, owe them. Snipes? No such agreement. It all started when our Wesley decided that he wanted to trim his tax rate to a svelte 0.0%. 
and given his motivation and resources, it's unsurprising that some sovereign snake oil salesmen and true believers were quick to assure him that he could do just that, for a reasonable fee, of course. These guys, Eddie Ray Kahn, whom Wikipedia refers to as a veteran tax protester, and Douglas Rosalie, an accountant who had his own troubles with the IRS, convinced Mr. Snipes of the standard boilerplate. Government's the enemy, you don't have to pay taxes, and if they demand you send them something, send in a bill of exchange drawn up against your straw man's account, and everything will be fine. So Snipes was assured that, as long as he said the right things and filed the right forms, he was legally bulletproof, IRS-wise. The only real difference between this case and the hundreds or thousands like it that have been clogging up court dockets for decades is the sheer size of the tax bill and the prominence of the taxpayer who bought into it. But bought into it he did. Under Kahn and Rosalie's guidance, he not only stopped paying taxes, but sent the IRS a 25-page quasi-legal-sounding screed demanding the return of $11 million he had paid for previous years. When you get into the nitty-gritty of this story, it touches upon all of the high points of sovereign tax protester bullshit. The arcane legal arguments, the rhetorical indignance, the who, me? confusion when the inevitable happens and the handcuffs come out. It's pretty great. The core of their argument is that Section 861 of the Tax Code states that only foreign sources of income can be taxed, so Snipes, and, by extension, all American taxpayers, don't owe money on their hard-earned wages. Essentially, this argument deliberately misstates a part of the code that's meant to apply only to those who earn money in the U.S. but aren't citizens and don't live here. Seems like a flimsy principle to stand on when demanding the return of millions you claim the government has stolen, but... Actually, no but... It was flimsy and stupid, and the most minimal research would have revealed as much. No doubt to try to save some time when sending out demand letters to these yokels, the IRS website features a thorough and well-documented rebuttal to all common tax protester arguments. In the Section 861 portion, it notes, Section 861 defines sources of income for prevention of double taxation of income that is subject to tax by more than one country. These sections neither specify whether income is taxable, nor determine or define gross income. These frivolous assertions are contrary to a well-established legal precedent. Yeah. He sent the IRS a letter demanding that they pay him money for previous years while insisting he wasn't going to pay a goddamn thing. You're probably thinking, the ball's on this guy. But it seems like he really, really believed the con these two dopes were selling him. Oh, and about that letter. It's kind of hard to find online, but we'll link to a sovereign-friendly site that hosts a PDF of the whole thing. There's a lot of boring in there, but the parts that aren't boilerplate are fucking awesome. Whoever drafted it, one assumes some combination of Khan, Rosalie, and Snipes, have combined the frustration of a long-suffering, self-righteous narcissist with the barely-veiled threats of a mafia goon. It starts with Snipes declaring himself to be a stateless person, a non-resident alien, and a transient foreigner, which, given the fact that he's a U.S. native, doesn't make a lick of sense, except, of course, he's declared himself a sovereign, disavowed the straw man. Yada, yada, fucking yada. The language starts funny and gets funnier. You are illegally kidnapping my legal identity and wrongfully and involuntarily transporting it to the District of Criminals. I remind you that you wouldn't need this provision of law if your bureau really had jurisdiction within the states of the Union. Remember, the U.S. government, and by extension the IRS, is a corporation that only governs D.C. and some territories, so it doesn't really... <laughs> Oh, and also, the letter anticipated the IRS's likely response. Any use of the word frivolous in your response in reference to anything I say in this correspondence shall be defined as truthful, correct, because that is how I define the word in my own personal vocabulary. Since the First Amendment guarantees me the right of free speech, 
It also guarantees me the right to prescribe the exact meaning of words. This, the legal equivalent of I'm rubber, you're glue, surprisingly failed to convince the IRS that they were dealing with serious legal minds. They arrested Snipes, Khan, and Rosalie, and eventually convicted all three, with the more dedicated ideologues drawing harsher sentences than the clueless actor. Good evening, everyone. I'm Gail Searin. And I'm Keith Tate. We are continuing to follow the breaking news we told you about just moments ago. Actor Wesley Snipes has received the maximum sentence. Prosecutors had pressed for that maximum sentence of three years because Snipes did not file his taxes for three years. And moments ago, the judge agreed with that. News Channel East Jeff Patterson is joining us now live from the federal court in Ocala. He has the latest. Jeff, it sounds like time ran out here for Mr. Snipes. Well, it's been a very long day, Keith. It's a very chaotic scene here right now. Today, the U.S. Marshal in Orlando ordered the actor to report to prison next week. This latest move comes two weeks after a similar order from a federal magistrate in Ocala. West News' Bob Killing joins us live to sort all of this out. And, Bob, what's the reason for the order today? Well, the order a couple of weeks ago from the judge up in Ocala came with no deadline to report to prison. But today's order from U.S. Marshal Tom Hurlburt does. So that means the day of reckoning for Orlando-born actor Wesley Snipes is December 9th. By noon, he is Snipes served about two years and five months, a pretty serious sentence in a world where celebrities have gotten off with a slap on the wrist for vehicular manslaughter. But that's the funny thing. Snipes, his co-conspirator doofuses, and all of the thousands of regular people who have gotten entangled with sovereign legal and taxation theories have armed themselves with paper weapons to go up against the fire-breathing dragon of the federal government. The IRS flame is maybe the hottest. The government is gonna collect money before it worries about any other concerns. But the functioning of the judiciary is pretty core to the government's role in identity as well. So Snipes and company have gotten together and convinced themselves that the world is a particular way, but they keep running into reality, as memorably expressed by The Wire's sociopathic drug lord, Marlowe. Look, I told you I wasn't stepping two. I ain't disrespecting you, son. You want it to be one way. What? You want it to be one way. Man, I don't you know want it to you... be one Man, way. stop! Stop saying that. What is the other way? It's the other way, sovereigns. And no matter how much you believe it, and how much you convince others that it's true, your ideas will never be anything other than your own personal paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Special thanks to our interviewee, Kevin Carey, a.k.a. Grover Cleveland, along with all of the other folks who've helped us tell this long, twisting story. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. We're also grateful for the many selfless individuals who continue to post videos online of sovereigns doing that voodoo that they do so well. Big Mucho is our web guy and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next month, we're taking to the skies and to the frozen north to tell you all about the sinister government plot against our air. No, not pollution. The crazy one. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.